Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're listening this morning. Last week, we began our interview with Dr. Michael Lycona, an internationally known Christian apologist, discussing some of the evidence for Christ for his resurrection. And today, we're picking up on the second part of that interview, listening to what Dr. Lycona has to say about how Jesus viewed himself. He's also going to discuss the issue of the historical evidence for Christ. You're going to love what Dr. Lacona has to say today. Jumping into last week's interview, here's Dr. Lacona. There's so, no other reasons that would you know, plausibly lead these earliest monotheistic Jews, uh, followers of Jesus, to come to the conclusion that Jesus thought of himself as God, unless Jesus actually made those claims. Um, and then when you say, well, you know, this is the best explanation, now can we um, confirm that with any evidence that we have from the New Testament? And yes, we can. It's just um, a lot of these verses or texts that scholars over the years like to just discount and call it legend because they say, well, this is the kind of things that we would expect the early church to come up with. Well, now that we know that the earliest Christians themselves believe this, and that the best explanation for that is Jesus made such claims, well, then we look back at these verses, and they make a whole lot more historical sense of why they're in there. Things such as Mark 13, 32, where Jesus says, you know, no one knows the time of my coming, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And here, uh, you've got a figure of speech here where you've got increasing stress so nobody no human knows the time of my coming not even the angels in heaven who are higher than humans of course nor the son who is even higher than the divine angels in heaven but only the father so um you've got jesus as god's divine son here um and the criterion of embarrassment would suggest that this is an authentic saying of jesus because if you're trying to promote the deity of Jesus, why on earth would you say there's something he, he wouldn't know? So this would seem to be an authentic saying of Jesus in which he is claiming to be God's divine son. And there are many, many other arguments that I could give for why Jesus thought he was God. Um, you, you know, um, he's claiming that he's going to come back in judgment to judge the world. Um, this would be the same as the apocalyptic son of man figure of Daniel 7, 1st Enoch, 4th Ezra. Uh, that Jesus made such a claim to be this divine figure is historically certain, given it's in every layer of the gospel tradition, Mark, Q, M, L, John. And it's even in Paul in 1st Thessalonians 4 when he says, you know, this we give to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, the teaching of Jesus and then it's, he talks about Jesus coming back in judgment. So this is a divine figure, and this is applied to Jesus by the earliest uh, writers. You've got Jesus in multiple independent sources, multiple literary forms claiming he's this divine figure. And then you even have this teaching of Jesus that Paul preserves in First Thessalonians that Paul says came right from Jesus. I could go on and on, but there's so much evidence out there to suggest that the real Jesus who walked the shores of the Sea of Galilee actually taught his disciples that he was God in some sense. And I think that's what Ehrman needs to deal with now, that he's come to the conclusion that Jesus' disciples thought he was God. Now he's got to answer what led them to that conclusion. So on that note, 
Why can we trust the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Well, I mean, there's a couple of ways that we can go about this. Uh, one could just presuppose that the gospels are God's inerrant, inspired word and say that's why. Uh, although I, I subscribe to the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, I, I don't like to approach it in that way. I would much rather look at it from a historical perspective. That's the kind of stuff I'm convinced by, and a lot more people are convinced by, rather than just making presuppositions about your own beliefs. Um, the, the Gospels are ancient biographies. Um, they were written within 35 to 70 years of the death of Jesus. Um, they certainly have eyewitness testimony that is attached to them irrespective of whether you uh, buy into the traditional authorship. I, I do, but even if a person doesn't, um, most scholars do agree that the Gospels do contain eyewitness testimony. Um, you, you're looking at various things, historically speaking, that we can corroborate about Jesus, about what he taught, what he did. Uh, not everything in the Gospels, but a lot of what's there. We can do the true things, such as multiple independent sources, embarrassing sources, um, the criterion of dissimilarity, early sources, eyewitness testimony, and Aramaic original, things like this. Uh, unsympathetic sources, things that are corroborated by ancient non-Christian sources like Josephus and Tacitus, etc. Uh, um, you know, so there's much in the Gospels that we can confirm historically. Um, and, and I think that that lends a lot to their historical reliability, um, and especially when we look at something like Jesus's resurrection from the dead, the historical evidence we have for the resurrection is profound, and if Jesus rose from the dead, well, then that renders a much greater degree of plausibility to miracle, the authenticity of miracle reports within there. I mean, after all, if, um, if Jesus rose from the dead, something like a virgin birth is child's play, pun intended. Um, you know, it, it's you just don't have problems with a guy walking on water and things like that if we know that he rose from the dead and claimed he was God. Uh, so I think there's a lot that we can say about the historical reliability of the Gospels. I often challenge my atheist friends and those that I talk with about these issues to go to Jesus for that very reason. Sometimes people say, can you really believe in this miracle or that miracle or this supernatural event in the Bible or that supernatural story in the Bible? And, of course, if ever we could know that one miracle in the history of the universe has occurred, then it would be impossible to write off other possible miracles. And if Christ really did rise from the dead, like you just mentioned, then I can look honestly at these other miracle accounts and judge them based on their own merits, not on my presupposition of naturalism. And so I think it's important for people to go to Jesus. And I guess... On, on that note, how do you see that as being important in this whole issue of apologetics? Obviously, there might be different issues that we have questions about on side issues. But the fact that the evidence is overwhelming for Christ and his resurrection, how important of an issue is that for the Christian worldview as a whole as an apologetical evidence for Christianity? Well, I like the resurrection because, you know, Paul, perhaps the earliest writer in the New Testament, 
um, in First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins, and those who have died as Christians have forever perished. Um, so everything is based, the truth of Christianity is based on whether Jesus rose from the dead. Um, Jesus himself, as reported in the Gospels, when they asked him for a sign that he was who he was claiming to be, he gave his resurrection as that sign. So Jesus kind of made it easy. He said, you know, basically, if I, if I raised from the dead, if I was raised from the dead, I am who I claim to be. I think that's fair. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then he was a false prophet. He was a pretender, a poser. Um, and I think that's fair. Uh, that's a very cool test. I mean, it's not like you've got in the Quran that where um, Muhammad says in the Quran, well, he says, God says in the Quran that if you want to know that this is really from God, try to take a chapter in the Quran and write one just like it. And he says, you know, you'll see that this is divinely inspired because no human could write something like this. Well, the Quran is divided into 114 chapters, or what are called surahs. So, you, and they go from, after the first one, they go from longest to the shortest. So just take a look at the last dozen in the back of the Quran. Um, they're very short. And, and read a few of them and say, could I write something as, as, as well as this? I think you, you'd look at it and you say, are you kidding? That's one of the, I wish my assignments in high school were that easy. Um, I think a Muslim could come back and say, yeah, but you don't understand. In, in the original Arabic, it was beautiful, it was poetic, it uh, had a, a, a nice um, flow to it in that language that sounds beautiful. Well, if you're a little bit trained in some languages, you could, you could do the same in Spanish or French or a, a beautiful sounding language. Um, and you say, well, yeah, but it's not Arabic. Well, really, does it come down to that? Uh, why Arabic? Uh, maybe some people don't think Arabic is a beautiful sounding language. Um, so choosing between what you think sounds more beautiful, it's like choosing between McDonald's and Chick-fil-A. It's a very arbitrary choice. Um, so I don't think the Quran, when, when I look at the kind of test that the Quran gives to know whether Islam's true, I think it fails its own test. But it's, a, it's a very subjective test. Um, when you look at the Book of Mormon, if you want to know it's true, the Book of Mormon says, read it, pray, and ask God with a sincere heart to show you whether it's true. And he will. Well, I did that. I think God showed me it's false. Um, it's a very subjective test. But Jesus doesn't give a subjective test. He says, you want to know if this is true? Go ahead and kill me. I'll raise from the dead. <laughs> so I think if we can um, show that Jesus rose from the dead, the high probability that he rose from the dead, that's a pretty impressive test Jesus gives and I think would verify the truth of Christianity. And I just happen to think that we can show that Jesus was raised from the dead. Historical evidence for it is quite strong. Absolutely. And it's interesting that no other worldview, no other religion, has a risen Savior. It is unique to our faith, which is incredible. And I always tell students that I'm working with, if you're going to trust somebody with your eternal life, how about trusting the only person in history that proved he had power over death? I don't think anyone else would have the credibility to make such a claim. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. We're interviewing Dr. Mike Lacona this morning, a world-renowned apologist, and I hope you'll listen to the rest of the show. We've all heard C.S. Lewis's trilemma that Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. Many people would say, oh, he was just a good teacher, and C.S. Lewis would say, no, a good teacher that knew he wasn't God, but went around saying he was God would be a liar, not a good teacher. Or someone that went around claiming to be God and didn't know any better would be a lunatic, somebody that was crazy. And C.S. Lewis leads us to the final conclusion that we have to look at Christ's life and evaluate him for his incredible and unparalleled impact on humanity and history and realize that he really was who he said he was, Lord and Savior of all. Now, somebody like Ehrman might say, and this would come from Jesus Interrupted, apparently, and maybe he's kind of shifting on this opinion, but he would claim that there's a fourth option, that Jesus never claimed to be Lord. You touched on this a bit, but again, why is he wrong? And you shared a few references. What else would lead us to believe that Jesus really did see himself as something more than apocalyptic prophet? Well, I would say... Okay, number one, the way I would argue to say Jesus thought of himself as God in some sense would be to say, number one, the earliest Christians believed that Jesus was God in some sense. And I'm talking about the apostles. Um, and this is something, again, that Ehrman would agree upon. So, um, And for that, I would give several texts, such as the hymn in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says that Jesus existed in the form of God. I believe that by that he's saying the role of God. Um, so Jesus existed in the role of God. He didn't regard equality with God something to be held on to. In other words, he existed in the role of God. He was God's equal at that point, but he didn't hold on to that. He gave it up, emptied himself of that role, and took on the role of a servant and, and so to die the cruel death on the cross and that God exalted him after that gave him the title above all titles. The word name in Greek can also mean title, and it makes a whole lot more sense to say that that's what it means here. Uh, so, sorry, the Bill Gaither song, uh, Jesus' name above all names, um, it is mis a mistaken interpretation of that. Otherwise, what would happen is um, you, you, you've got anybody who has the name Jesus, Joshua, or Jesus come along and say, hey, I've got the name above all names. Um, or uh, if Jesus, at that point, after his death, God exalted him by giving him the name above all names, and that name is Jesus, well, then what name did he have before that exaltation? What name did he have prior to the resurrection? Well, it was Jesus. <laughs> so it can't mean that he gave him the name Jesus after that. It, it, it gave Jesus the title above every other title so that at Jesus's title, every knee will bow and tongue confess. And what is the title above every other title? It's God. It's Lord. Um, and when he says every knee bow and every tongue confess, he's quoting from Isaiah 45. And Isaiah chapter 45, God says no less than five times, I'm God, I'm the only God, there's none other but me. And again, after saying that five times, he says, and to me, every knee bow and every tongue confess to God. 
well, the earliest Christians here, Paul, whoever writes this hymn, is applying this to Jesus. And where are they going to, they're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord or Yahweh. So this is a very clear reference, and it comes from the earliest times of the Christian church, where they say Jesus existed in the role of God, he was God's equal, um, and people are going to honor him as they honor God by every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, and they're going to call him Yahweh. Uh, you look at Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 13. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And there he's quoting from Joel chapter 2, a verse that's applied to Yahweh. So in other words, Paul's saying, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Yahweh, you will be saved. For whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Um, they apply things to Jesus which only apply to God. I've mentioned Paul doing this with the second coming in judgment in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So um, it's, I think it's pretty clear that the earliest Christians, and one plausibly connected to the apostles, most plausibly connected to the apostles, regarded Jesus as God in some sense. So then the question you have to ask, as I said earlier, is what led these staunch monotheistic Jews to come to such a radical belief? And the best explanation, the, the only plausible, reasonable explanation, is that Jesus claimed to be God in some sense. And for that, you've got, in support of Jesus actually claiming, You've got Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, who said, here's the word of the Lord, the teaching of Jesus. And then he applies it to this divine figure coming back in judgment. Um, you've got it in the Q source, uh, Q3, 10, and 13, where Jesus is the judge of the world. Um, you've got it in the, the Gospel of Mark, on several occasions where Jesus is this divine apocalyptic son of man who's going to come on a glorious throne in judgment of the world and with the glory of his angels, things which Zechariah attributes to God. Um, you've got the sent passages um, where Jesus says, I have come. Um, I have come. Well, come from where? Um, so there's all these these different things, I think, where, you know, Jesus is, oh, you've got things like in Mark chapter 2, Oh, by the way, Gospels and ancient biographies, their primary purpose was to illustrate the character of its subject. Plutarch says this very clearly in the first chapter of his life of Alexander the Great, and also he says it in his life of Nicias, and he makes statements to this effect within, say, his life of Cato the Younger. So when you look at the how, look how the Gospels are portraying the character of Jesus. Who is he? The Gospel of Mark starts off in chapter 1, where it's talking about um, John the Baptist is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of our God. So John the Baptist is the one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, who's pre he is preparing the way of the Lord, he is making God's path straight. Well, who's he making the straight for? Jesus. He's preparing the way of Jesus, he's making the straight, making straight the paths for Jesus. Um, that's Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 2, you got Jesus who heals a paralytic and forgives him his sins. And the, the uh, Jewish leaders say, well, that's blasphemy. Only God can do that. Yep, that's right. 
uh, later on in chapter 2, his disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders say, um, wait a minute, you know, what you're doing, you're breaking the Jewish law about working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, chill out, guys. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) What? You know, you've got the Ten Commandments that God has set up here. And Jesus saying, hey, don't worry about it, guys. You know, I'm Lord of the Ten Commandments. What does that say about who Jesus thinks he is? Um, later on, in, in chapter, I think it's 7, you've got uh, Jesus saying that by casting out demons, he's binding Satan, the strong man, um, and plundering his kingdom. Well, what human can bind Satan? In Mark chapter 9, you've got, after the transfiguration, Jesus casts out a demon that his disciples can't cast out. And later they say, why couldn't we do it? And he says, well, this kind only comes out by prayer. And yet Jesus does it, not by prayer to God, but by his own word. What does that say about Jesus? And then you've got the apocalyptic Son of Man saying all throughout Mark. So I, I think the whole Gospel of Mark, probably the earliest Gospel, presents Jesus as God in some sense. And so it shouldn't, it, there's no evolution going on between Mark to John. John says pretty much the same thing. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You've got the Jewish leaders wanting to stone him because he, being a mere man, they were saying, made himself to be equal with God. So the, these kinds of things that we find in John are the very things that we find in, in the Gospel of Mark. And, and you've got Paul saying the same thing ahead of time. So there's no evolution going on. You've got Paul at the early end, you've got John at the later end, they serve as bookends, and you've got the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, in between, where Jesus is presented as God. So um, I think there's a very strong case to say that the historical Jesus claimed to be God in some sense. So did Jesus see himself and describe himself as modern Christianity portrays him? as God in human flesh and Savior of the world? Well, I think he I think he did. I don't think he necessarily did it in those kind of terms that we would use today, but I think the concepts are there. Certainly he saw himself as a, a, an atoning sacrifice. You know, in the Gospel of Mark he says uh, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, this is in the earliest Gospel. So, um, and the earliest Christians, and Paul, the, one of the apostles, and who knew the others, he's writing before any of the Gospels were written, and he saw Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So you got to say, where did they get this idea if not from Jesus himself? You look at the um, sayings of Jesus at the Last Supper, where, uh, you know, these are multiply attested. Not only are they in all the Gospels, but you've got um, multiple independent traditions, um, for example, Matthew and Mark are very similar in the wording, but when you look at Luke, it differs. And then you look at Luke's um, Eucharist sayings, I think it's in chapter 22, and compare them with the Eucharist sayings preserved by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, they're virtually word for word. And so Luke and Paul form a tradition, or preserve a tradition. Matthew and Mark preserve a tradition where the wording is different, but the meaning's the same. But it shows that there were multiple independent traditions that were going around very, very early. Um, but they all point to the same thing. So if Jesus is talking about his body, which is broken um, and for on behalf of us, his blood, which is poured out for us, um, he 
he sees himself as an atoning sacrifice. So, yeah, I do think that the historical Jesus did claim to be God in some sense and an atonement for our sins. Can we show historically that he did it in the fullest sense as preserved in the creeds? I'm not sure. And that's why I say he claimed to be God in some sense. That in some sense is deliberately ambiguous, or vague, I should say. Because um, history, can, historical investigation can only go so far there. So what about the historical quests for the real Jesus, which have dated back over the last century? What have they found or failed to find, and what can we know confidently about Jesus? I think we have to be careful, Nate, when we're talking about the historical Jesus. Um, and, and scholars, many scholars are careful to do this. Um, I think it just sometimes, you know, they'll say one thing academically, but then they jump to their own conclusions, and can, that can be confusing to people. The historical Jesus is not necessarily the same, the real Jesus. Um, the historical Jesus is the Jesus we can prove by historical investigation. Now, like I said, I think we can prove that Jesus did uh, deeds that uh, astonished crowds and that he and his followers regarded as divine miracles and exorcisms. I'm not sure that we can verify any particular miracle of Jesus. Perhaps we can. Uh, Graham Twelftree, a leading expert on the subject, in his um, book, uh, the miracle, uh, Jesus the Miracle Worker, thinks that we can, and, and you know perhaps we can. But we can certainly uh, verify the more general conclusion that Jesus performed amazing deeds. Um, without calling them divine miracles or exorcisms. Um, and we can certainly conclude that Jesus regarded himself as a divine miracle worker and and, exor and exorcist. Um, just because we can't prove certain things, however, doesn't mean they did not occur. We cannot prove, historically speaking, that Jesus walked on water. So therefore that Jesus walked on water is not part of what we would call the historical Jesus, since the historical Jesus is only the Jesus we can prove with reasonable historical certainty. That doesn't mean that Jesus did not walk on water, it just means we can't prove it. So the real Jesus may have walked on water, but the historical Jesus, we can't show that he walked on water. Um, and we need to be careful in being able to distinguish between those two. A lot of times scholars will make the mistake by saying, if we can't prove that Jesus walked on water, that means he did not walk on water. Or all of a sudden they'll say, well, the historical Jesus did not walk on water. Well, that doesn't mean that the real Jesus did not walk on water. The historical Jesus is only a very, very, very small reflection of what the real Jesus was like. Sort of like what a tombstone uh, the epitaph on the tombstone is a very, very, very small reflection of the person who's buried beneath it. Uh, the real person was much more than is described to them on their tombstone, just as the real Jesus was much more than what we can prove with the historical Jesus. And again, we just have to make sure that we're careful not to say, because it's not proven, therefore it didn't occur. We would just have to say historically, 
we can't prove that it occurred. If we believe it, we believe it by faith. But doesn't mean he didn't do it. And historically, we know so much of what we see about Jesus is historically confirmed, and I think we have a strong foundation on which to step out on faith on things like walking on water that there I don't even know how somebody would come up with a way to empirically prove that that occurred or did not occur. Well, if you enjoyed today's interview with Dr. Lacona, I would encourage you to tune back in next week for the final part of our interview with Dr. Lacona. Also visit risenjesus.com and Amazon. And when you visit Amazon, type in Michael Lacona, L-I-C-O-N-A, to find out some of his books. I would ask you, if you've never made a decision to put your faith and trust in Jesus, to come to him today and say, Jesus, forgive my sins, come into my life, make me the kind of person you want me to be, I put my faith and my trust in you. I would invite you to join us this week for Connect at Noble Hall 125 at 6 p.m. And I'd invite you to go to GodSolutionShow.com and look at the list of churches that we have there and find a church to visit this morning. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>